Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is Six Months Later, Why a Former UBS Lifer Considers Independence His Do-Over. It's a conversation with Ami Baum, founder and CEO of Interchange Capital Partners. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you're not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be incredibly grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make the series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who could benefit from the series, please feel free to share it widely. What if we all had the chance to take a mulligan at least once in our business lives? That is, use the proverbial golf do-over rule as a way to reset our goals and expectations and take that shot one more time, but this time from a whole new perspective. That's exactly the way Ami Baum put it to me when we first talked about his transition to independence. I met Ami over a decade ago, perfectly comfortable enough at UBS at the time, making a good living and building a strong business. Then his son Brian joined the business seven years ago, and things started to change. And he began to see the future and their strategy for growth through his son's eyes. It was an awakening that made him dig deep and evaluate everything to create a clean slate. For the first time in decades, Ami started asking himself if UBS was indeed the right partner for the future of the business, a legacy that he and Brian would build upon and Brian would someday take over. With $420 million under management, Ami felt confident in their growth and gained a new sense of courage to do it all over again. So in June of 2020, Ami, Brian, and their team launched RIA Interchange Capital Partners in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with the help of Dynasty Financial Partners. It's a unique perspective from an advisor who is just six months into independence. Ami shares the story around the events that precipitated his change of heart, what other options he considered, how they planned for the move, where they are now, and much more. So let's get to it. Ami, I am so happy you are here. I said to you offline, I feel like it's like watching my children grow up and having real pride in them because my team and I had the privilege of representing you and your son in this moved independence and it's such a gift for me to get to interview you now. I feel the same way, Mindy. This has been a long time in coming. Uh, I was sitting there thinking and preparing for the show and I was thinking, wow, it's been over a decade and a couple of fits and starts and you were so gracious and and frankly did what you said you were going to do, which has been remarkable. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would, for perspective. What came before UBS? I started in the business 40 years ago, 1979. A friend of mine's father worked for EF Hutton. We ran a restaurant together in college. And uh, 
I had a lot of school loans that had to be paid and I was headed out west to become a ski bum and I got a letter from the Pennsylvania Higher Education Association said they wanted to get paid. So I had to figure out and pivot and say, well, I guess I'm not going to be a ski bum for a couple of years. And, um, you know, went to work for EF Hutton. Um, They hired me. Don't know why, because I knew nothing about the industry. I did not come from wealth. I didn't know anything that they did. Actually, I do know why they hired me. Uh, When they asked, uh, when I, the typical question in an interview, what's your weakness? I said to them very candidly, you know, I don't know anything about your business. How good is your training program? If your training program is good, I can learn anything. And he, the guy sat there. And at that time, I was 24 years old. He said, I've never had anyone turn that around on me as quickly and put the pressure on me. I think you're the one. And then they called me a week later and offered me the position at EF Hutton. Uh, stayed there till EF Hutton was bought by Shearson Lehman. At that time, after the 87 crash, I had gotten involved in building teams with Bill Good. Teaming wasn't something that Shearson Lehman Hutton was all about, uh, even though I had one. You know, there were some changes in real estate, but my team was spread out all over the complex, and Payne Weber was interested in me and uh, had a couple of conversations with Joe Grano because I was concerned that Payne Weber, frankly, wasn't as far along in money management, which was what I had been pioneering at EF Hutton, but ultimately made the decision to join Payne Weber. And then Payne Weber was bought by UBS. So there's the history. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. Okay, so then you and your team left UBS in June of 2020 to go independent and form Interchange Capital Partners. So if you would, for perspective, tell us a little bit about what your business looked like at UBS. So let's start, how much in assets were you managing? According to UBS, which we found out how they handle this, we were at about $420 million in assets, according to them. We recognized going through the process that there were probably, well, there was only about $350 million productive assets, you know, with the stuff that we were actually really getting paid on. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I pioneered investment management consulting, so you know, we, we have a lot of fee-based revenue, so I would say it's closer to $350 million is what we had. You know, the business was built uh, primarily around transition planning, unlocking a lifetime of work for business owners and professionals. And uh, so we had a legacy book of, you know, clients who had been with us for decades. And when my son came to me when he was a sophomore in college, sitting in his apartment in Indiana, Bloomington, even though he ultimately moved to Penn State and graduated there. And he said, what happens when Baum Consulting Group isn't there? I says, well, you know, it will go to my partners. Why are you asking? (laughs) He said, well, it looks like you've done okay for yourself, Dad. Maybe I'd be interested. And I said, okay. So we started a process of getting him some education, some internships in the insurance business, because that's the easiest way. And ultimately, when he graduated, he had had offers from a number of insurance places. And he said, Dad, where's your offer? I said, I'm glad you asked, because I have a problem. And he said, what's the problem? I says, you know, I've seen second generation. And the last thing I want for you is to have the albatross that says, oh, well, you're successful because you just got into your dad's business that was successful. And I said, so if you're going to join, you have to know that you're going to start at the bottom. You're going to figure out and, and 
build this thing. It's not that I'm going to hand it to you. I'm going to be there every mm -hmm. step of the way to support but uh, with that. And that was the game changer for us because yeah. it actually gave me my mulligan, my do-over. And I said, okay, uh, if I was to start all over, and this was seven years ago, if I was going to start all over, what would I do? How would I do it? Uh, because I have always been innovative in this industry. You know, I mentioned earlier that I started, you know, in 1982 with my first fee-based investment management account. Uh, fast forward to when UBS bought Payne Weber and Martin Hoekstra convened a group of top leaders in Pittsburgh and over dinner and asked, so what's the future of the industry? And they all looked around. They said, it's what Ami's doing. I want to annuitize the business. I want the fee-based business. And Martin turns to me and says, so I guess you're going to retire. And I says, just to the contrary, I think there's a next phase of this industry that's really important. And that's truly delivering on comprehensive, collaborative planning. And that was that recognition that the industry needs to move there isn't there coming is well, clearly it is there on a certain level and so when brian shows up we get the opportunity to do the do-over and i mm -hmm. said if i was going to do this i'm going to we're going to focus exclusively with business owners and their exit planning and their succession planning and the reason why is because I had some very dear friends at UBS in the ESOP group in Atlanta, Keith Marika and Bruce Bickley. And I watched when we first met at Chairman's Council, I was ahead of them and they were behind me. And in no time did they eclipse me. And, and most importantly, at a, at a conference with Bruce Bickley, when we had, where I learned about the blue ocean strategy, I turned to Bruce and I says, oh my God, you've created a blue ocean strategy. And so I said, my do-over is we're going to create a blue ocean strategy around this single largest, most complex financial transaction of these people's lives. And we had already done some of this stuff because we were so focused on planning. But that was the piece that really ended up changing the trajectory of uh, our whole business in my career. So, so much to unpack in what you just said. And I want to take it in a couple of different directions. First of all, big smile on my face when you talk about bringing your son, Brian, in, because I think, as you know, my son works with me. He's now the president of our firm and nothing in this world has been a greater gift for me or made me prouder than having the opportunity to work with him and see him grow and thrive. I also love how you put it about it gave you your do-over because I talk with so many advisors about how the time, you know, they're sort of going along, they're either happily happy enough or they're unhappily happy enough, meaning they're frustrated, but it's good enough for them. And when they bring their next generation in, it's when they begin to put on different goggles and really have different expectations for the business where they begin to say, boy, what got me here isn't necessarily what's going to get him there. And if I care about his future and his legacy or her future and her legacy, 
I need to do something about it. So I want to get to that in just a moment because that's really important to me. But I'd like to give our listeners some perspective on a little more perspective about the business. So you left UBS managing what they called 420 million, which was really about 350 million. Did your typical client look then like it looks today, the business owner? And give us a little bit more just about the business then and now. How much are you managing today, almost a year later? How many were on the team then? How many now, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, asset, we're at $350 million, you know, as of this morning. So we've brought over all the productive assets, which uh, within, you know, we're not quite a year. We're actually, you know, maybe six, eight months. So uh, one of the things that happens when you go after this business owner segment and the way that we did it, it there's a long, very long lead time for this stuff. Uh, it's part of the reason why I think it's a challenge for wirehouses to go after this business. Uh, it just takes a very, and even Keith and Bruce, you know, down Atlanta said, you know, it, it's, it's like a five-year runway. So, you know, Brian starts seven years ago, two years, you know, we had, you know, some interesting things that we could talk about maybe today, maybe later, about how we got a 24-year-old to have a Rolodex like no one's ever seen before. But it took a while and our best year of asset transfer uh, or about new assets was in uh, 2019. Uh, we brought in a uh, $70 million family. I mean, that just, it was like, what? <laughs> that was the market telling us that we were on the right track. Mm, validation. Uh, or it, the total validation with it. So the book up until that point was a lot of professionals, doctors, lawyers, accountants, executives, that primarily because, as I said, my work for the last 40 years has been all about transition planning, unlocking a lifetime of work. And if you were a business owner or a professional, whoever, it wasn't a niche in terms of that. It was just a niche in terms of the planning and the process and how we went about helping people with the largest financial transaction of their lives, which is not just, and I know we'll get into this, it's not just about the money. So our book is pretty similar. The, the very interesting thing was through the transition, we brought on four new clients. I mean, what? <laughs> this thing has really just, I mean, I, I sit here today in six months and pinch myself. So there were eight of us at UBS and we took seven of them and all of them are millennials. So it's, it just wasn't about Brian. It was about Kendra and Chris and Evan and Alyssa. It was about looking and hearing from them some of their frustrations around working in these big firms for there were a number of things but when we recognized that we had this unbelievable growth strategy and then the question became well where are we going to grow and you and i had this conversation but your listeners don't know is we went down this road this was the third time okay and i stopped two times before and the reason why i stopped is because as i told you I don't know if we're going to grow. Let me try to double it uh, at UBS first, and then I'll see. And then I recognize that once we identified this growth strategy, was UBS the right place? And, and, it, and it wasn't just UBS, Merrill, any of these, because they just take so much for it. 
Yep. All right. So again, I want to come back to that. But how did your clients respond to your decision to leave UBS and go into independent? You said all of your clients followed you, but what most was their response? Them. Yeah, most of them did. I mean, you know, look, I did this one time before. And as much as I have an optimistic view and I, and I believe we're always doing everything and everyone's going to come. Well, everyone didn't come, but we replaced them, obviously. And there were some disappointments. But by and large, the comment was, I'm there because of you. I certainly need to understand this because UBS has a very strong brand and UBS was on the attack which is a whole other story that at some point I'd love to unpack with you around protocol, non-protocol, but we'll hold that later for some other time, you know, around it. I just think it's a travesty that they bring people in and then, you know, they, they work, fight so hard when people leave. It's just a, the whole thing doesn't make sense to me. And, it's, and I don't think it's fair for the client. So the biggest issue is to get the clients comfortable with the custody and the safety and the security of their assets. And that's where having BNY Mellon Pershing as our custodian out of Pittsburgh, that was a major good decision. Now, we went through the due diligence as we had to do. But for the most part, the comment was, we've been with you for so long. It's really your advice and counsel. Once we could get them recognizing that there was safety and security for their assets, then the issue around products and services, which is the third leg of the stool, was less of a concern. And the real driver was the advice and counsel doesn't change. In fact, the advice and counsel as we now know, is much better because we have a much broader array of opportunities that we can bring that at least UBS couldn't, and I'm sure some of the other bigger firms couldn't. So we've been with you, and it's what everybody said would happen. But I will tell you, you know, that June 12, 2020, on my 65th birthday, when I resigned, I was back at zero. And those first two, three months, of battling UBS and battling all the financial advisors and pulling all this stuff together, you know, you don't go into you don't go into this thing lightly. But as everybody says who's gone through it, it's a lot of work. There are disappointments, but when you come out the other end, why didn't I do it sooner? <laughs> yeah, well, that's what everybody says. And you know, you're a unique interview for me because while I've had the privilege and pleasure of interviewing many breakaways now, you're the only one I've interviewed that's at less than a year since break. And I chose it, one, because I like you and I'm so happy for you. And I know that you're so happy you made this move. But also because I think that everyone knows that the first year post-break going anywhere can be a tough one, certainly emotionally fraught. And for an independent advisor, as you say, the first couple of months of battling UBS and working hard to move clients and learning to be a business owner and all of it can be difficult. So talk to us about that. And I'd especially love to hear about, you said before, bringing in four new clients in transition. Well, let's go there. That just is a testament to the work that Brian had. And it was interesting because a number, a couple of them said, we were hesitant when you were at UBS. Well, why were you hesitant? Mm -hmm. Well, we weren't sure if we were getting you or we were getting the UBS. And these are business owners. 
that was something that, you know, they're not institutions. These are family businesses. As one guy said, I've been on this tightrope for so long. And I recognized, you know, when I sat down and talked with you folks that maybe I should take some chips off the table. So the reason why we were able to do that is because we had already been working on proof of concept and prior to. We had the luxury because we've done a really good job of role clarity within our within our group so that Brian could very quickly get back to these people and start talking to them again and telling them about Interchange Capital Partners and the fact that we clearly now have owner empathy because <laughs> we are true yeah. owners. And, and that's something that's very interesting because in my mind from day one, 1979 at EF Hutton, I said, basically what I have here is a franchise. I never saw myself as an employee. The reality that proved itself to me was that's all I really was. And that was, you know, you talk about the cam, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back was that recognition because, you know, I had this thing all mapped out. I had this thing figured out and I talked to you about it. I'm going to get all these thousands of shares of UBS stock every and, you know, I the dividend off of that. I was a lifer. You knew that. You, I told you. They took really good care of me. And then yeah. that aspect of it. So that's how we brought the new people in for it. So I think that's really interesting, Ami, and wonderful, obviously. So one, it begs the questions, what is it or what was it that you think you are able to do for those new clients as an independent business owner that you couldn't or they thought you couldn't have done for them at UBS? I think the issue was that, that every time we brought a recommendation, the question was, since it was always tied in with UBS, is this yours or are you getting some pressure? The other thing that happened, and you had an interview a while ago with another UBS advisor and, and when he went through when he he would he had this whole estate planning piece that he was brought and the day before the presentation compliance came back and redlined all this stuff and it said not the role of a financial advisor I had the exact same experience because as we were building out this business transition work at the time we called it the business transition group at UBS I built out a white paper I was you know working on it and I sent it off to compliance and there's a, a number of things that you have to do for a business owner that's beyond, that's business related. Exit transition planning and exit planning has the business and the personal. Well, all the business strategies around maximizing and protecting the business, okay, all kinds of different things. They would redline, not the role of financial advisors. Wait mm -hmm. a second. This is planning. And we were the poster child for planning at UBS. We charged our dollar for planning. We got all the, and so the issue was when we would go to a business owner, they had to sign a financial planning agreement. That means we had to deliver a financial plan. Well, what about all the business consulting work? What about valuation work? What about all the things around uh, you know, incentive compensation, employee, and it's just a whole menu of items that we really couldn't bring to the table because it's it doesn't fit the 
role that the financial advisor according to UBS's compliance. And so the opportunity set to really go into it and then the agreement that they signed, you know, the first client, our very first client signed a $42,000 annual consulting agreement that had nothing to do with financial planning. It had to do all with the business planning. We could never have gotten that done at UBS. Yeah, I know which episode you're referring to. It was an interview I did with Terry Cook some months back, who was a UBS advisor. His straw that broke the camel's back moment was exactly that. He was putting together a presentation, a PowerPoint presentation for a client event or something he was doing. He had submitted it to compliance probably a month before the presentation. And two days before the presentation, he got the whole thing back redlined with a million places that said not the advisor's role. And that's when he realized it was time to go. So that makes perfect sense. So what else was going on at UBS at the time that made you want to leave in general and then to decide to go independent? And I'll give you, I just want, before you answer, I want to give you a little context for the question. I asked the question because one, people move because of pushes and pulls, right? They move because they're pushed by frustrations, the things that they wish they could do, the limitations that irritate them. And hopefully they're equally pulled to something that they are passionate about. It sounds like in your case, especially once Brian joined and you had gotten this you know, really clear about this growth strategy that you began to believe that UBS was just not going to be the place to get it done. So what were your pushes and pulls relative to what was going on at UBS and the pull toward independence at the time? Well, this is a just an unfortunate set of circumstances that took place. Just given the nature of a national, international brand, uh, Western Pennsylvania, which is the area that I operated in, in the decade, I think I went through three or four different branch managers in this period. On the Eastern Pennsylvania, it has been solid as a rock. So again, this is the part of the business of having all this management around it. So I go back to that moment when you know all of this thing changed. I told you earlier that I always looked at this thing as a franchise. And not only that, I always invested in the business, took my own money. Sometimes I got help from the firm. If I didn't get help from the firm, it didn't matter. I knew what I wanted to create and I invested money. My brother who's in the business says, you would make so much more money if you wouldn't be doing it this way. But I had a very clear vision of what I felt the organization needed and how to deliver to the clients. And I recognize that I worked for a firm and they can't always supply everything. And I was willing to go out there and do it myself. So the issue was a combination of the fact that something was going on in Western Pennsylvania. Western Pennsylvania had two Payne Weber offices. That had to change. I unfortunately was the one that had to be brought into. So I lost the manager there. Then there were some issues. And, and again, we're never privy to this. You know, they talk all the time about being partners and business units. But the fact of the matter is, there's some truth to that. But now, in hindsight, I can see, you know, look, you know, we get paid very well. 
They've got a great comp system. They've got a good thing there. But ultimately, we have to rely on other people making decisions around the business that we just have to toe the line with. So that was one major piece that changed. The other piece was the way they handled Brian in terms of their approach to, and and this could be changing, but back then, you know, the manager at the time didn't quite get the approach we were taking because Brian wasn't just, his first account didn't get opened up for, I don't know, three and a half, four years from the time he started. And I was supporting him. Okay, and I kept moving gross from me to him to keep him at certain levels that the firm wanted. So Brian was very frustrated as a millennial saying, hey, Dad, I'm really and I would always say, go talk to the branch manager. Go to he said that he doesn't want to talk to me because I'm not producing. You know, they saw it. So there was that issue that was going on. Then there was the fact that the chain of command kept changing. And when the chain of command changed, the agreements that were made with previous command didn't translate. And ultimately, the straw that broke the camel's back was when my longtime CSA made a mistake. She admitted to it. It was a it just she checked the box that said she talked to the client. The client happened to be my cousin. It was a fraud email. went out. 15 minutes after she checks the box, my cousin calls, says, I got hacked. It wasn't me. You know, she did it because she had done this for this guy for decades. She, everything looked right. And there's a zero tolerance policy as there should be. So I'm not saying that. And she was going to retire six months later. Well, a year, six months before that, I knew based upon the agreements of how much compensation the firm was going to pay and how much I was paying out of pocket, then I had to make a decision. And because we are planning oriented, I wanted to hire a planning specialist. So we ultimately hired a planning specialist and I invested in the business six months earlier, knowing that when she retired, I expected that the money that the firm was paying for her portion of compensation, I was gonna get back into my pocket. So she gets fired. I turn to the current branch manager saying, now, look, I just want to be clear. I want to be very clear. I expect that money to come back into the system because, frankly, I've already invested and spent it with this uh, ex-estate planning attorney that I hired to do the planning. Oh, yeah, no problem. Matter of fact, I'm working with the region and we're going to try to do a better job because I know what Brian's doing and I understand what you're doing. And I buy into this blue ocean strategy that you're executing on. I said, great, wonderful. Well, this was in December of 19 or November of 19. February of 19, I get the call from the branch manager. You're not going to like this. (laughs) Don't don't tell me. He says, not only aren't they going to give you the money, but you can't hire and replace them, that person. I said, what? And again, there was a health issue with the the regional guy that was a terrible thing for him and his family to go through. It just was a combination of events so that my support system that I thought was there 
ended up not being there. And the decision-making process boiled down to a number. So the new divisional region, and I, I always forget the layers because I really don't pay attention. I keep my head down. I figure out what I want to do and what we need to do for the clients and what we want to grow the business. So ultimately, they said the regional guy was out on a horrific health issue. So the new divisional guy above him didn't know me from Adam. They looked at the numbers. The numbers say that I'm twice as expensive as any of their other financial advisors. I'm the one they're going to cut. So you're going to be kidding me. And I, and, and I talked to this new guy and he says, look, you saw the earnings. It's a business decision. We got to look at this as a business. You know, you got to do your share. Well, wait a second. I've done my share. I gave my time freely to help train people around money management, to help train people around planning, how to charge for planning. I mean, remember, we were the poster child for what UBS wants to be. And so he didn't know any of that stuff. And so I turned to him and says, well, I guess I better start looking at this thing like a business too. He says, always, absolutely. And then as soon as that call ended, I called you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, so no, that I was the straw that broke the camel's back. But I will tell you that Brian was having issues with the way they were approaching. Kendra, who was this remarkable millennial who had a strong background in banking and saw how a big bank is. She says, Ami, it's just unbelievable the amount of work that we have to do to protect UBS. You know, and that was the other thing. Once I had made this decision, worked through this, I remember going through a compliance piece. And they're totally right. And the compliant was probably money laundering or something, you know, and it says, we are the gateway to the global financial system. We all have to protect them. And you know what? They're a hundred percent right. My response was my clients and me, we're not at the gateway of that at all. So the amount of money and time and energy we spent around that. So you put all that stuff together. But the key, and I keep telling you, the key reason is I knew we had the growth strategy because I never took anything for granted. I appreciate every single client that came over and the vast majority of them did, but I would never have left. And this is the reason why I didn't do it the second time around because the growth strategy with you, that the growth strategy hadn't proven itself and I wanted to prove it first. To those that are listening, and I remember talking to somebody who when I was doing this and uh, you know once I had chose dynasty and I know you're going to get into why I chose dynasty and everything like that he made he this other gentleman who was with dynasty talked to some people and who went all independent and then backed away and the reason why they backed away was because there was no growth strategy so mm -hmm. I think it's a critical piece now you might have a big enough book of business where billion dollar breakaways that may not be as important, you know, for it, but for a $300, $400 million book of business, for me, without the growth strategy. So, yeah, there were all these things that lined up, but I have to go back to, you know, the growth strategy that said, oh, we can do this. And now let's grow it because the question is, do I want to leave? The, well, first of all, the opportunity is huge out there. There's trillions of dollars available for us, for those that get it right. It's huge. So now the question becomes, do I want to give 50% or 40% or whatever? Let's just call it 50%. Do I want to give that to UBS to make the decision or Merrill or Morgan or whoever to make the decision 
about what to do and then I not have any ownership of that other than I own the stock. The notion for you, the clarity around, now I'm confident about my growth and I know what it is I want to do is everything. I get that completely. But you could have taken that same growth strategy and done a million other things. You could have gone to another wirehouse and would have been paid a lot of money to do it. You could have gone to a regional firm where you would have encountered Kendra and Brian might have been a little happier, less bureaucracy and get a lot paid a lot of money to make the move. You could have gone to a quasi independent or a boutique model like a Rockefeller. And all of those models would have paid you significant transition money. And yet you chose to go independent, walking away from unvested deferred comp. How did you reconcile that? Couple of things. I ask myself this question regularly. What would you do, Ami, if you weren't afraid? That was an important <laughs> litmus test. So that was number one. Number two, thanks to you and Deborah, you gave me the opportunity that I needed to learn about these. So first of all, the move to Morgan and to another wirehouse, because I know this industry that was a lateral move, and I understand why advisors who are 65 years old do it. I remember the first time when a friend of mine says, look, Ami, you know, I just took care of my life. I monetize it. You know, I don't really care if I get anything grown or not. I got all the money now, and whether I hit the back ends or not doesn't matter. You know, I'm clipping coupons for the rest of my life and my family. I'm good. That was not what I wanted to do. I got a lot of life left in me, I hope, and, and I've got a lot of passion for this business, as you know. So for me, that just wasn't on the table. There's nothing in my mind. I think there are differences between UBS and Morgan and Merrill and you know those kinds of things. But for the end user experience, which is me as the FA, I don't see much difference uh, with it. So that wasn't even an option. As we started to evaluate the hybrids and some of these others, um, and I want to say this as nicely as I can, because sometimes I say this and people get offended by the way I present things. I'll just say it the way it is. We looked at all of these other options. We felt that they were good places as an intermediate step. We called it JV. That's where people might get pissed. Okay. I don't know if I can use that word. We called it JV. So the question was, did we want to get to the game and be at the varsity level and go for it? Or did we want the transition? And I struggled with that. I did for a long time because the money difference was huge. Mm -hmm. The running difference was huge. And I'm 65 years old and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, you know, and again, not wanting to take anything for granted. I, I, I wouldn't do that. And so I hope that all the clients, I hope the statistics are true. It worked, you know, when I went left from Hutton, but the world's different and all kinds of stuff. So that it took me a while. And to the credit of my son and, and Kendra, because she was the only one I could bring in. And, and that's part of that protocol issue. They said, hey, look, mommy, dad, this is your call. We will do whatever you want to do. So mm -hmm. this was mine entirely. And when I looked at the landscape and I looked at where is it that we want to be? Where is it that I want to be? You know, a lot of the chat is always, oh, you did this for your son. 
yeah, I did this for my son, but I also did it for me. And it was as, as important for me as I did it for my son and my young team. Again, because I'm not one that is going to just sit there and, you know, play golf. And, you know, I want to be relevant and resourceful until, you know, I'm not here anymore. And this business and this industry allows us to do it, uh, you know, for it. So that's why we ended up taking the bigger leap, frankly. And it was a bigger leap. And frankly, Dynasty is remarkable. We can get into that. But even as remarkable as they were, the first three months, four months of connecting and putting and pulling all this stuff together, you know, I mean, I said, wow, it's a lot of heavy lifting. There's a lot of education. There's a lot of learning, uh, you know, around it. But now that we're there to truly own it, and not only truly own it, that to know that every single person that supports us is paid by us they work mm -hmm. for us we don't work for anyone except for the client that you cannot say in some of these other places and yeah. that was critical to me yeah i appreciate that and i think when you say anything else you looked at would have felt like the jv it's not saying that morgan stanley is the jv to interchange capital partners it's more just the fact that for you that would have felt less than what you really wanted it to be like the real opportunity light and i get that completely i get well, that completely yeah totally and, and the biggest problem with the big firms is the amount that you have to leave on the table because they have to run their organizations and they do a great job. Please. I don't want anyone to, I am tremendously grateful to all of wall street. Remember I came from nothing. I didn't know anything. I was able to build this tremendous thing because of the Huttons and the Payne Webbers and the Morgans and the Merrill's and, you know, because they have really good stuff out there. So I don't want it to come across that I think they're bad, terrible, or not competent. It just wasn't right it, for you anyway. At this stage, when I look out at my next 25 years, what made the best sense? And true, total, independent, and ownership made yep. the best sense. Yep. So let me pivot to the notion of Brian. As we mentioned before, I began to view my business through a different lens. If my son had not come into the business, I still loved what I did. I had no intention of going anywhere, but I'm not sure that I would have worked as hard to grow the business or think about making changes to the infrastructure because I didn't need to. But for me, my son coming in was a game changer. And you mentioned, you know, you said, Brian gave me my mulligan. It was my do-over. How would I really want to do it? So to what extent did Brian's needs impact your decision to make the leap you did? It wasn't Brian's needs. It really wasn't. It really was a very strong business decision. We knew what we had. And the question was, was it better for us to stay put or was it better for us to look for the alternatives? And from two lenses, from the client's perspective and our ability to really, you know, get our hands around family office light types of work and from how much we would have to support 
support the rest of the organization because we knew with, without a doubt that the growth was coming. So it, it really, you know, I would suggest at some point, maybe you put Brian on your podcast, you know, and mm-hmm. talk to him because he may come up with some very different things. Obviously, he was frustrated. The frustration that he had was that he didn't feel that he could deliver on everything that we knew we wanted to be able to supply to these families and to these business owners. Now, we worked through it, but it's hard. You know, there's a lot of layers inside of these big firms. And I get them and I understand compliance and they have a lot on their plate. They got a lot of constituents that they have to take care of and they got regulators all over them and all kinds of stuff because in fact they are the gateway to the global financial community. And unfortunately there are some bad apples in our business, you know, with it. So Mm -hmm. I think it was more that from the client's perspective, we felt we could do a better job for sure. And then it really was that business decision that said, do I want to leave another, everyone could run the numbers, you know, you're doing three, four million bucks and how much are you leaving on the table? And then you're going to go double the business and you're going to leave twice as much. And you got to go and negotiate all the time with people that are great people. They're committed. There's some phenomenal people in these roles, but they have their constraints. They're not the final decision. So it's constantly a negotiation. And for a while, it's just, you know, we're spending so much time and energy on that, taking away from the time and energy of delivering this wild client experience and executing on this blue ocean strategy. It gets tiring. Yeah, I hear that a lot. And I think for a lot of folks, they say, you know, look, once we've seen what could be, what is possible, it's hard to unsee it. And once you've seen it, you become more aware of the things that are limiting you where you are. And I think that's part of the issue. I am shocked, shocked at the infrastructure available and capable outside of these firms. I didn't even Mm. know it existed. I really didn't. Remember, when I tell you, I put my head down, Mindy, and you know this. I remember Ben Bynes telling me at Timestick when I asked something about, because I didn't even understand how the statements work. And he turns to me at the very beginning and says, maybe you're not really right for independent. And rightfully so. I mean, all I knew was the mothership. And I'm grateful for that mothership. I'm truly grateful for that mothership. Because for me, coming from nowhere with no idea about anything, they helped me grow. I helped them. It was a great relationship. It's why in 2008, when you called and said, you know, are you interested? I said, no, they're taking really good care of me. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm not going anywhere. I believed yeah. all of that, and I was committed to all of that until these various things happened, and the industry changed, and it's going to continue to change. And I don't know what the future looks like for financial advisors in wirehouses. I've heard some things, and everyone has to look at that. And so you have to sit there, and I think everyone talks the same thing. You have to look. If you are truly committed to the business, the industry, the clients, you have to take a look and find out where's your best place. For many yeah. people, it's at UBS, it's at Morgan, it's at Merrill. And I get it. And they're absolutely right. There's a tremendous amount of great things that these firms offer and be able, but it does not come free. There's a cost to it. And I think when you put these things down, 
you have everyone has to make the decision. And today, the infrastructure outside in this RIA space, especially for those bigger teams and for those growth-minded organizations, it's a very viable option. Yeah, that's exactly right. The fact that you outgrew UBS and wanted to build your own business as a way of really leveraging this growth strategy and serving clients isn't an indictment necessarily of UBS or the model. It's just saying that for you, it wasn't the best way to do it. But one final question. It's not lost on me that you moved dead smack in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> so I am wondering, and it's sort of wrapped into the wide dynasty. And we're talking about dynasty financial partners that Ami chose to associate his business with. You mentioned that dynasty was remarkable, not surprised. But how did they help you? And how does sort of making this move in the midst of a global pandemic, how did that work for you? I have to say... <laughs> it made it easier because we were all working remotely. I mean, my, my biggest fear, you know, and this goes to that protocol issue and all that stuff, which I just, I'll repeat, I think it, the industry needs to relook at this. They're talking out of both sides of their mouths. I, you know, there now there may be things that I don't understand about FINRA regulations and all kinds of SEC regulations around this, but the fact of the matter is, knowing the industry the way it was, one of my biggest fears is, oh, my God, you know, we're doing all this stuff and we're not supposed to be doing all of this stuff. And if we get caught at doing all this stuff, we got problems. The pandemic changed all that. <laughs> we were all working remotely. So the pandemic, frankly, made it easier. Now, to get to the breakaway of the day, and because this was June... We had conversations going back and forth. Should we do it now or later? We had already picked an alternate date as August, and I said, you know, because we didn't know what was going on. So we were doing strategies and talking back and forth. Uh, from a, the client's perspective, it went much smoother because our technology was really remarkable. Not just our technology. There's there's another part of all of this. Now that I know what I know, my back office support is significantly greater significantly greater from, you know, the CSA, the, the custodian work, all of my compliance, marketing. There isn't anything that we're not getting better response times, more opportunities, every single checks the box off uh, on that stuff for you. So the, the pandemic was had its challenges, no doubt, but in many ways it made it easier. I love Zoom calls. I think Zoom is remarkable and clients are bought into it, our ability to DocuSign everything. So I get that it was a challenge, obviously, for the world, for people, not, you know, the human toll. I mean, all of that stuff. But for the move to the business, as much as I was worried about it and concerned about it, it really didn't have much of an impact. Well, that's a wonderful thing. Ami, mean, I've got a million questions about your views for the future, your plans for the business. I would love to talk to Brian. And so I'm going to take you up on that offer. We're going to do another episode at some point to hear more. But your perspective and your thoughts today and being so gracious and sharing them again less than a year out is really much appreciated and not lost on me. So thank you very, very much. Mindy, I can't thank you enough for 
shepherding me through this process that frankly started in 2008. And then I said no. And then we started it again five or six years later. And then I said no. And then finally, you and your firm and your team hung in there and really, really helped me get the education, get the understanding to be able to make what clearly is the best move we could have made. So thank you so much to you and your team. And thank you for the opportunity to talk with you. And I'm always available to share my views and opinions. (laughs) That's for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. You too. Thank you. It's not often that advisors are willing to talk about their leap shortly after. So I'm grateful Ami was able to share a fresh perspective of the early stages of their transition to independence. While I think many of our listeners will find his commentary relatable, there's one statement he made that I think is most relevant. What would you do if you weren't afraid? I thank you for listening, and I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, I'd be grateful if you'd give it a star rating and a review. That will let other advisors know it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.